This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by Revitalist, yet another company that I've pursued to bring on the show as a sponsor because I know they truly have solutions to many of the problems that we face. Currently, there is a global pain and mental health pandemic that we are suffering through. For some people, traditional therapies are working, whether it's psychotherapy, whether it's even prescribed medication, but for many, many people, they are what's known as treatment resistant. The traditional roads are just not working for them, leaving them even more frustrated. You may have heard multiple times on this show the Navy SEAL community, for example, having incredible success with Ibogaine and psilocybin, and in the UK, MDMA-led therapy. The problem is none of those are legal at the moment. The good news is the anesthesiology world discovered that ketamine, a drug that they use legally every day during surgeries, actually has incredible mental health and chronic pain applications as well. Now, on episode 559, I had Catherine Walker, a certified nurse anesthetist, who decided to start Revitalist after seeing the incredible results on chronic pain and mental health challenges. This rapidly expanding company is currently in nine locations spanning Knoxville, Tennessee, Detroit, Houston, Jacksonville, Florida, and beyond. And each facility offers low-dose ketamine therapy, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, TMS, vitamin infusions, and so much more. Now, to truly hear the full story behind this, go to episode 559 and listen to Catherine Walker's episode, or go to revitalistclinic.com to learn more about the therapies they offer, their locations, and to reach out to them yourself. Welcome to episode 585 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Norman Penny. Now, Norm is a member of the Canadian Air Force Pararescue Team and has an incredibly powerful story. From his deployments in Eastern Europe, the incredible crucible that is the Air Force Pararescue Training Pipeline, becoming a jack-of-all-trades master of none, and some of the incredible rescues, including jumping out of an airplane in the middle of the night and then parachuting to a disabled ship to facilitate a rescue, it was an absolute honor to hear some of the stories of these true silent professionals. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 585 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Norman Penny. Enjoy. Well, Norm, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Happy to be here. And I want to say thank you to Dave for connecting us as well. <laughs> PB, I appreciate it. I enjoyed my time flying with him. <laughs> All right. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, right now, I'm just outside Halifax in Nova Scotia. It is uh, about minus 12 outside there and it's currently snowing. I got to do some snow blowing later on. 
So we were talking just before we started recording, I think it's an kind of important um, thing to bring up and it is a good icebreaker as well, no pun intended. You obviously, you know, work in extreme conditions, um, mountain rescues. However, you had that hit close to home. So talk to me about that. Uh, which one? Sorry there. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about losing power with the ice storm and uh, how it was different exactly. with it happening in your own home. Okay. For me, it's... Uh... I guess uh, it caught me off guard there because every year we have some type of storm, uh, whether it's a major snowstorm or uh, the other day was a, an ice storm. So like I said, for myself, I've always been prepared. Uh, I have kit downstairs. We always have stuff ready to go. Uh, but all of a sudden I caught myself on my heels because the power went out right pretty much across Nova Scotia, this province up here in Canada. Um, but uh it didn't come on right away. It didn't come on for almost a day and a half. And all of a sudden the temperature's dropping in the house and I'm like, don't like being caught on my heels. And especially when I have my family behind me to take care of them, um, didn't like it. So anyway, cracked that bank account open a little bit, got a nice generator all ready to wire it in, and I'm ready for the next adventure of other nature throws at us. So now you're praying for a power outage so you can use your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can be the man, walk around peacock, see what I can do, yeah. <laughs> I'll charge your phone if you like. <laughs> All right. So then I love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, uh, interesting for sure. I was born in a small town in uh, Cape Breton Island in the province of Nova Scotia up here in Canada as well. Uh, small little town, population me. Now it's a little bit bigger than that, but uh, small town, a lot of nice people, a nice place to raise children. Um, however, I grew up in the country and uh, I was raised by my grandmother. Uh, a lot of brothers and sisters, many are half brothers and sisters. Uh, my mother really uh, was a good woman, but growing up, she probably didn't have the responsibility of having that many children. So our grandmother took care of us and raised us uh, quite well. Uh, I'm happy of that because the base and the foundation was put in place for my nan. Uh, if I don't hold the door for somebody, I don't say please and thank you. Uh, my nan would be there. She's still there in my ear telling me to you know, straighten up and be a gentleman. So I'm happy uh, how I was raised. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, there's definitely challenges for sure, um, but I'm very happy of the history and how I was raised because it lets me know uh, what it was like, uh, where I'm at now, and uh, how to be a better person in the future. And what about your dad? I mean, it's it's funny. There's a lot of people in our professions associated that are drawn to this because of you know some of the the elements in their their childhood. So was was he there at all, or was he completely absent? No. He, he passed away when I was six months old. Oh, I never wow. knew the man, never knew the man, uh, just our brothers. Um, there was nobody in the military in my family at all. Uh, the first time I remember seeing a search and rescue helicopter or anything like that was in a farm in a field and in the distance this yellow helicopter flying by with two blades on it. Didn't have a clue what it was, uh, but there was no calling. There was nobody pushing me or nothing. It's just something that next, you know, I was running around in the trees as a kid with a piece of wood and a stick playing army. And uh, that's, that's, I guess, where it started. I joined cadets, uh, air cadets, at 13 years old. And ever since then, I've been in uniform. But there was no, no father figure, nothing uh, of anything. Uh, YouTube has been a dad in the last uh, so many years, just teaching me certain things and how to fix things and how to make things. Um, and uh, with my son now, I try to, uh, even though it seems like I'm dragging him sometimes, he says, but uh, I just want to be able to try to teach him things which I never had as a, a young, young man. Well, one of the skills I think is being a gentleman. It's funny because I posted, um, God, who was it? Chris, I forget the guy's last name now. I'm totally blanking it. But the guy that plays Captain America anyway. 
Um, and, you know, there was always different clips of him extending his arm, whether it was Betty White or whoever at some of these award ceremonies. And most people were like, yes, this is what we need to do as men, blah, blah, blah. And then there were some that was like, this is toxic masculinity, da, 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 women are capable. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm just like face palming. I, to me, the true essence of being a gentleman, it can be towards a woman or a man. It's just really about being kind and compassionate. So w- what were the things that your grandmother taught you about being a gentleman? Like for me, and I see it today, um, you know, even my kids will see it. Uh, we walk up and we hold the door for somebody that could be a man, woman, dog, cat. I don't care who walks in. It's my nice side of me just saying, I'll hold the door for you. Uh, and they could walk by and say, thank you. But there's, there's quite a few that don't say thank you at all. So it's those little things that uh, my grandmother was key in my life with regards to uh, uh, instilling in me. And I'm trying to do the same, whether it's uh, with my kids or out on the street, or I see a neighbor and his driveway is not going the best. Well, I just take my slow blower, go down there and help him with that driveway. It's just the, the nice civil thing to do. I saw a video the other day, I shared it, of someone snow blowing their street and they were wearing one of those like inflatable unicorn costumes. Oh, yeah. that, that is awesome. <laughs> it was brilliant. That, that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but with with the the door thing, I think, you know, the kindness and compassion is where it's coming from, you know, and it's you know, yes, of course, people are able to hold door for themselves, but you know, it's, it's nice to do it. You've already got the door in your bloody hand. You may as well extend it for other people. But I remember hearing Wayne Dyer talking about the exact thing that I used to do kind of in my, probably my thirties when I was sleep deprived and, you know, stressed at work. So we'd hold the door for someone and then they wouldn't say thank you. And I'd go, well, you're welcome. And his whole thing was, if you're holding a door, expecting thanks, you're holding the door for the wrong reason. And I was like, yep. All right, Wayne, I got it. (laughs) It is so true. And like I said, even uh, later on in my life, uh, and just that base of trying to help somebody, trying to just be nice to somebody, I've used that throughout my career on many, many, many uh, different uh, levels for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, then when you were school age, you didn't have this kind of draw as far as the uniform professions. Talk to me about how you found the cadet program and then how that impacted you personally as a child. Um, I think in the cadet program, uh, one up here, it's called, yeah, the air, the army and the sea cadets. Well, the one that was closest to me in my school at the time was called the, was the air cadets. Uh, and the biggest thing during my family and there are, uh, you know, how we were raised that we weren't definitely not rich at all, not even close. This program was free. This program provided guidance, uh, uh leadership training. It provided just, uh, an ability to you know, go to the good places at night and uh, learn something versus going to the bad places at night. Not that there's a lot of in my own small town, but the, it was still there for sure. Um, but it, it sent you away in the summers for employment if you wanted to. Again, leadership training. You could even do pilot training. You can do glider training and uh, power training as well. Uh, and once I got in there and I seen rank structure, uh, teaching drill, learning how to teach drill, map and compass, survival. Uh, these are all things that uh, that built for myself, which I didn't even know I was going to go into a career in the military at that time. But I'm glad I did because it did make things down the road uh, easier to check in and check off as they uh, as they were on my radar. Now, it's interesting because it mirrors what I've spoken about a lot, which is you know, when we talk about a multitude of things, including diversity, what I've seen work so well here in my town with a couple of guys that started this up was a firefighter mentorship program. So they go into you know all these neighborhoods and they let these kids know, hey, 
as you said, for zero fee, if you can just show up at this fire station this time, we will mentor you and, and prepare you for the fire academy. There are scholarships available. A lot of our local departments hire straight from the academy. Um, and, you know, so people think obviously of certain skin colors or, you know, sexual orientation or um, uh, and genders, but that's, one of the, that's not what it's about. Any underserved community, these mentorship programs are incredible. So what would have been the other side of the tracks for you? You know, what, what's, what's the darkest side of the town that you grew up? Oh, I would say the darkest when I was growing up anyway would probably just be uh, small level drugs, I guess, you know, getting into weed or something or just and then following down a rabbit hole, maybe not going to, uh, you know, look for a job or just getting into trouble with the, with the law. Again, a small town. Uh, but that small town not, not that far away is a bigger town. And then there's a city a few hours out. So it would just uh, potentially start you off on, on a path that you may not recover from or you may continue to choose the wrong route. And next thing you know, you find yourself in, in a situation that, uh, you know, you could be in trouble and uh, life not be the same you wanted it to be. And then with the absence of a, you know, of a father, sadly, you know, losing him as an infant, um, what element did some of the mentors within the air cadets uh, become as far as that kind of manly figure in, in your journey in your middle teens? I guess it would have been some of the instruction I had. Um, some of the officers that were there, the chief, uh, cadet instructors. Um, yeah, and then going away, going away for some camps and meeting new people and different types of leadership and uh, just being learned to be confident, I guess, and to speak on certain subjects and uh, – to I don't know it was it was just the basis of meeting those people um, other than my nan for sure uh, who she was very strong and it's very intimidating as well um, but uh, yeah it was just meeting new people different leadership and sports um, we probably talk about sports as well is playing baseball uh, you can find me cadets uh, you can find me on the ball field and uh, team sports uh, learning to speak with adults in growing up through baseball or through cadets I guess that's where the it all started from there. And then next thing you know, high school is over and uh, I joined the military. Well, talk to me about that. So you were in the air cadets, you know, what made you choose the army? Um, I just, I think the air cadets were, were, were interesting for sure. But my true calling was the green machine uh, from being a kid and running around with a stick and throwing acorns at each other, young fellas in the woods playing army. Uh, and then I had a few of my friends that joined the army. Um, but I, every movie we grew up watching as a child, it wasn't about the Air Force. It was about the Army. It was about special operations. It was about uh, you know, the Dirty Dozen. It was about these movies. The next thing you know, I wanted to be part of a team. And I didn't want to be... In 1991, when I tried to join, uh, I went to my recruiting office and they were saying, okay, uh, Mr. Penny, we're not recruiting. During the 90s, we had a major freeze up here pay raises in the military. Uh, recruiting was really down. We released a lot of people. We reduced our numbers pretty low. Uh, so they weren't taking anybody. So when I applied back then, I could have been a steward, uh, some type of uh, something on a ship. I can't remember exactly what they said, but one was a steward on a ship. And I can't remember what the other one was. None of them was what I was interested in. I wanted combat arms. I wanted infantry. I wanted armored. I wanted uh, shell drake artillery. I wanted anything with the green machine front line up front where things were happening. So they said, we're not taking it right. Nothing's open. So I joined the reserves. So the reserves were about a 45 minute uh, trek uh, uh, from where I lived 
And they, every time for training, they'd send a truck around the island and gather the recruits and bring us in for training. So I trained with them for about a year and a half because, again, could not get in the reg force. Believe it or not, you could not get in the, the infantry corps back then. But I joined the infantry corps in the reserves, and I was working with them. And then a call came up. Um, and next thing I know, I found myself uh, augmenting a reg force unit out of Winnipeg to go over to the Balkans in Yugoslavia uh, to serve over there as reserve. Fast forward a little bit, I came back from there overseas and I walked in the recruiting office and said, okay, I want the reg force, the full-time active military up here. And uh, he goes, uh, we tried to call you, Mr. Penny. We gave you a call twice. Nobody returned our call. Nobody answered our call. I said, this is because I was in the Balkans when you were calling that number. And he's like, what? I said, yeah. I said, here's a letter from my commanding officer for being over there. So where their file, my file was in the back alley they took it right to the top, and then a week and a half later, I was in basic training with a medal on my chest, getting jacked up, joining the military. Nice. Yeah, it was not. It wasn't fun with the medal going through. <laughs> I was going to say that made that made you uh, slightly visible, huh? Oh yeah, never attract, <laughs> never attract, never attract fire, but I was drawn fire. <laughs> so with Yugoslavia, I mean, yeah, you know, we know that there there was some pretty horrendous atrocities happening in the the nineties in that area. So was that a period that you were there during? Hundred percent. Um, I was definitely in. I went over ninety three, and uh, again, it was not a very nice place. I remember checking in the first night. I checked in, got on the ground, we're driving in from the Zagreb airport, and we're looking at the back of the truck, and we're going through all shiny, clean, new battle armor and everything on us. That changed over months for sure. And you see the houses are full houses. Next thing you know, there's you know no houses, windows broken. Next thing you know, there's no roofs on houses. Next thing you know, houses are gone. Next thing you know, there's dead animals in the, in the fields. So then we were right in the smack of, in Yugoslavia. For a period of time, we've also, uh, we had to move down south in Sector South, a place called, I'm not sure if you've ever heard it, called Medak Pocket. And that was quite, uh, quite the, the ordeal down there for sure. Um, basically, you, under that time, we were with the United Nations. And we had to basically put ourselves between Serb forces and the Croat forces and stop the fighting. And during that period, the, basically, these two organizations did not really want to stop fighting. So, uh, yeah, for that period, there was a lot of heavy, heavy firefighting, uh, a lot of uh, artillery barrages, a lot of crash harbors moving our vehicle, uh, a lot of tense moments for sure. There was definitely times that uh, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I went over there. But there was times I was scared shitless for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I want to post this question that I normally ask people, you know, more often than not, it's been in the Middle East, but I mean, this would be an interesting perspective for, you know, the deployment that you had first. We as non-military civilians get a very polarizing view on war through the media outlets, either very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, very anti, they're all baby killers. So it's important for me to get the stories from the men and women that are on the ground. Was there a moment when you, you know, left Canada, as you said, small town Canada, found yourself there where you realized that there were, you know, atrocities or, or evil being done upon the people of that, that country um, that kind of reaffirmed why you were there regardless of the politics prior? Yeah, um, I'll just tell you a story that when we were there a few months prior, um, we weren't, we weren't, uh, we had to stop any weapons or any arms, any munition, any supply chain of contributing to the war in the sector that we were at. So every vehicle had to be searched uh, inside, outside, suitcases, you name it, we had to take a look at it and confiscate it to try to stop the fighting. 
and we were told about um, certain buses. And this is near the the first sector uh, sector west. I think it was in we were sector west, the first part of the uh, of our tour. And just on the outskirts, there was still school buses that would take kids to safe areas to go for school. When we were in the south sector, there was none of that. There was no women. There was no nothing. There was no animals or nothing. But we were told that you you know you'll see men on these buses, and these men um, have long coats and they will have weapons. Uh, and the weapons are there is because they will take care of the kids on the bus. So prior to uh, the, a bus was stopped and everybody on the bus, all kids were executed by the other faction. So if that doesn't give you goosebumps or tell you exactly the difference of what it's like back in your own country, your own yard or somewhere else abroad, but they cleaned everybody out. So even though we were supposed to confiscate and stop weapons, we just, we'd go walk in full armor to the bus, check everything out. And these two men would just nod their head, open their jacket, and you could see an AK-47 or some type of weapon that was in there. And that weapon was there to protect the bus. And we were okay with that. The kids were scared, petrified, because they, they realized they what happened months ago. And now they're seeing us come in with full body armor on and weaponry. Uh, the next day, I walked on, same routine. I walked up and I look at the kid and I just stopped and give him a little smile. I crack my armor vest open and nothing but apples and oranges and everything comes flying out. And the kids just after that, they were smiling. You can just see they're, they're children, but they are scarred, but they're just children. Um, yeah. So things like that. And then obviously when I was post tour, I never walked on grass for six months because of booby traps and mines. So the first day I came back and I actually walked on grass, I stopped and it took a while for my brain to process, you know, weeks, to say it's okay to walk on grass, not just stop the first time you feel grass. So definitely a difference. And that's where I, I, I could probably see it. There's many stories over there, but uh, it definitely, I, especially in today in today's society, both in, in, in the States and in Canada, we know not everybody's happy. Uh, there are some certain things going on with divide, but we are damn lucky for the freedoms that we do have. And we're damn lucky for the countries that we live in compared to what is out there that people don't know about. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, with that particular conflict, I'm I'm kind of like trying to pull the memory from, from years ago. Was that a religious war? Oh, my God, that right? Ultimately? Yeah, it was, it was ethnic. It was the Serbocrat. Um, during the time that country Yugoslavia was controlled by Tito, the break happened. Tito's gone. All the factions divided up. Even today, there's sprulings in the papers and the media right now that uh, Bosnia, again, is kind of not very happy with the situation that they currently find themselves in. So I hope it doesn't go again, and all of a sudden it's a break. Because one day they were they were neighbors, and they were flipping burgers, having a picnic. Next day, that family would come across and kill them. So I don't know. And that's one way we could always tell what side of the tracks we call it, what side of the tracks we were on down there. Because if I came in and I seen a house, looked out on my street right now, I went, oh, that house is uh, James' clan. I can tell it's because it's still standing. Well, that's Norm's clan over there because that house is flattened. And it's because a tank ran over it 10 times to make sure they're never coming back to that house again. So <laughs> definitely uh, definitely some roots in there for sure. And uh, it's going to be hard to mend. But over the last, well, I guess, Jesus, what, 25, 28 years now, it's, uh, it was stable somewhat. Hopefully it doesn't go down that road again. Yeah, I hope so. It's just, I mean, the, the common theme over and over again, it seems like the a few people – 
initiate these conflicts and you know families and friendships and you know neighborhoods are dragged into it i mean even you know i don't know if you've seen the same thing my observation my sole observation is there are some terrifying parallels to what we've seen with like oh are you pro-vax you're anti-vax are you pro-police you know i mean it's just the same thing you could you could dry erase whatever label you've got there and you you write something new but ultimately you're taking a community that should all be standing side by side and you're pigeonholing them and then fighting them against each other like you know as well you probably history is history and if we don't take heed to it we don't keep it on our radar it's going to repeat itself and one of the main common denominators it is is you, is you cause divide and once you start causing divide you putting a side versus b side you know sometimes it happens you know, just watch a hockey game up here in canada 18 bc <laughs> Yeah, I think Canada is, I mean, uh, hockey's the only sport where I've seen people burn down a city when they win. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I, I don't know the rationale behind that one, but they do it, especially in Montreal. Yeah, they like flipping cop cars. Yes, bizarre. All right, well, then just staying with Yugoslavia for one more moment before we move on. The other side of the coin, the other side of the question, you hear these these incredible moments that some of these men and women witness when they're overseas of whether either normality or kindness and compassion amidst a combat zone, were there any moments that resonated with you? Kindness or compassion? Um, I know we did our best. Uh, we call it, I guess, hearts and minds. Uh, we did our best to help, uh, you know, the locals in the area to help them as much as we can. That could be from helping them farming, uh, removing ordinance from their field that wouldn't kill their 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 farm animals. Um, I think overall, just uh, providing protection uh, when bullets or, or artillery pieces are coming in and we roll in with uh, 12 plus armored carriers and we take that house, it's a two, three house, and we put them in our steel boxes and, and take them out. Um, a lot of fear, but there's a lot of hugs and kisses at the end of it too, and they know they, they've been saved in an aspect. And just a blanket of protection. Um, even though we weren't fully armed up, and don't get me wrong, United Nations does some great work out there. Uh, but NATO has the teeth. Um, and I'll give you an example of that one. It's, again, a little off track, but I think it's important to talk about. Uh, please. Is, uh, yeah, is, you know, I found myself in the earlier parts the, under United Nations, you didn't have a lot of the uh, combat capability. Uh, you know, we had uh, some heavy weapons, but they weren't heavy. They were an anti-tank weapon, a rocket, a uh, 50 cal machine gun, some, some standard weapons, uh, sidearms and uh, long barrel. And that's what we had. But you're fighting a well-trained army, a Yugoslav army that has tanks, it has mortars and artillery that they've been fighting for years, and they are very good at it. So if I tell you, drop your weapon, we'll take your weapon, James, you're not getting this weapon back, you've been a bad boy, go home. You come back three days later with a whole bunch of people with bigger weapons, just like, give us weapons back. And we just give you weapons back. Well, we were... <laughs> We were in a similar situation, but under NATO, uh, I went back to Bosnia uh, years later in 99 under NATO and uh, same kind of thing. It was Kosovo was lighting up at the time. And uh, one faction decided, no, all those weapons that were in lockdown that Bos that the NATO had taken and put away not to become out. They're basically mothballed. Well, the faction said, no, we're taking them out. We're going to go help in Kosovo and they're coming out. We're going down. And the NATO commander said, bring them out. Bring them on out. The first one that breaches the door, it's going to be melting in the doorway. They never moved their tanks. They never brought them out. But that's the kind of difference between those two organizations when it comes down to peacekeeping and peacemaking. 
That's fascinating. And you have such a unique lens to be in one you know, Eastern European country under one umbrella and then another one under another. What similarities did you see between Yugoslavia and Bosnia? Uh, very much similar. The first tour, uh, again, there, like I said, there was basically no women around, no, no animals, the no wild, they were, they were eating each other, uh, no kids, very limited on kids. Uh, I did see a woman one night, she came through our checkpoint, two women, and uh, she opened the door, she had no teeth and an AK-47. So totally different kind of situation then. She just wanted some gas and move on, but she was a soldier still. She was not just a woman, she was a soldier. Um, the second tour, uh, more like policing. It was pretty stable. Um, I remember driving down the road in my armored carrier and seeing a woman on the side street with color in her hair. So a guy was at makeup was coming in. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, there was no ethnic cleansing going on. Uh, there was nothing like that. Uh, that first tour, um, again, in the Medak pocket, uh, we, we would roll in and just give you a picture. You know, we, we, you roll in with the armored and you can't, heck, you can't go anywhere. Just stop because the roads are all mined, everything's mined. So we call it a, a, a linear leaguer. So the carriers will peel back into the tree line, push into the trees and park. Hopefully some camouflage, some protection, some type of defense as well. Um, but when we, prior to going in there, like we were waiting for hours because you can't get off your tank, you can't move anywhere. We were throwing acorns at each other from carrier to carrier. And then later on the farmer came by and he showed us you know, the danger areas. Now, there wasn't that many trees left in there because an occupying army will drop these trees. They will create roadblocks with them, and they will also booby trap them, which we didn't know. All the trees that we were playing with had mines up in the top of the trees, Claymore mines designed to fire down on top of us and wipe us out. Any branch that we would have pulled from a tree to make a, a hoochie or something would have, would have ignited us. Um, yeah, so and then when we actually went into the town, the town was destroyed. Every animal was shot. Uh, there was women uh, in the in the ponds. They they took babies and dropped babies into wells uh, to pollute the water. Yeah, so it was definitely uh, a, a very different situation the first time versus the second time where it was more like policing. You know, I heard one gunshot on my my second uh, rotation over, and that was a guy trying to shoot a stray dog. So versus the first time, uh, yeah, quite quite different for sure. Well, we're up to 99 now and already, I mean, you know, the the things that a, a young Canadian, you know, boy from a small town has seen is pretty, pretty uh, intense. Were you still in that branch of the military when 9-11 happened? Did you deploy after that? Um, after that, I actually, uh, I took a posting, a station to uh, our basic recruit school training. So I went there to teach uh, young recruits in the morning and uh, how to fold their socks and how to properly dress himself and uh, learn how to march and instill a little bit of discipline, take them from mama and mold them into the military to put them at the door. Uh, so I was over there for a bit. Um, and uh, actually, actually, no, prior to that, prior to that, no, I was in St. Jean when that happened. But then I was on a small arms instructor's course in the infantry corps. You do, once you're a sergeant, you take a small arms course to learn how to teach all the weapons in the infantry cadre and how to run way our ranges. And we were taking a, an anti-tank missile system called the Eric's uh, lecture. And then we just heard 9-11 hit. We were sitting there watching like, oh my God. It's funny because two of my friends that were uh, part of the special operations up here, as fast as that happened, their phone rang and we never seen them again for the rest of the course, they were gone. Um, 
yeah, they were they were gone pretty quick. Um, yeah, so I was uh, at that time I was again with the the infantry and uh, in the process of actually transferring over to SAR at the same time. So you were doing the training then. Did you find yourself deploying to the Middle East with with the army, or did, was that um, the last kind of time before you transitioned to the Air Force? Yeah, at that point I was with the army again, just doing the when the plane struck. And from the time the plane struck until we started deploying people, it was a period of time. Um, so I was home and I was in the process of transferring over from the Army uh, to the Air Force to become a search and rescue uh, technician, pararescue. Um, I had made a decision prior to that, prior to the plane hitting the building, that uh, um, I did two tours. Uh, I went over there. I was part of a, being a section commander over there and leading troops in a foreign theater. So I was happy. I, was, I checked off a lot of things I wanted to do in the Army, and I wanted something new. And some of the things that really excited me, sorry, this wasn't fire, but it was uh, being a paramedic, uh, being a police officer, especially canine, because I love animals, uh, canine. And uh, that's that's what I was, I was thinking about getting out or you know, being a cop somewhere. And I looked at different avenues and then I remember walking down the hallway and I seen at the recruit school and I seen a fellow instructor. Most of the time we we're in our green fatigues at the time when we were there. But on every Friday, they put this policy in place that you go wear your operational dress. For example, if you were a pilot, you go wear your flight suit. If you were so-and-so, you go wear this. In the Navy, you go wear your whites. Uh, so all of a sudden, I seen this orange guy walking on the hall. He's like, looks like a pylon. And I went, what the hell is that thing? Uh, and I got to know he was a search and rescue technician. And I asked, what the hell does a search and rescue technician do? And he says, well, he jumps out of airplanes. He's a scuba diver. He's a paramedic. He's a mountain climber. And he flies on multiple airplanes to help people. I said, that's a thing? He said, that's a thing. Uh, did some research, found out about it. I was like, and then all of a sudden, realized you had to be a good swimmer. Well, I could swim two, two laps in the pool, there and back, and almost puke. I was not meant to swim. Uh, but then I took you know, some lessons, got in the water. My buddy is a triathlon dude. And I remember one day he was up on the bike and I swam back and forth six times in the pool and I got up and I gave him the six and he's like, yeah, man, awesome job. Awesome job. Uh, and then long story short, when I finished my training, uh, I had swam like 170 some laps for charity one day. So I could hit the water. I was confident the water again. And that was the process of getting to, to be that search and rescue technician and to be able not just to pass the test, but to be very comfortable and routine the test, if that makes sense. Well, it seems like that branch of special operations is, is you know, still very kind of understated. And it's very hard to, you know, learn a lot about it. The PJs in, you know, the American Air Force seem to be getting a little bit more um, storytelling coming out of there. But for me, I've always said this, if you had a profession in the military that mirrored what we do in the u.s in the fire service i think pararescue is the closest thing you know we are jack of all trades master of none um so talk to me about firstly the entrance test like where is that bar set for candidates to want to enter that program um it changes every so often but as far as i know right now you still have to have four years um, in the canadian armed forces up here and that could be an, any branch um, it was open for a period of time for civilian direct entry. Uh, we had some great candidates uh, there as well. But I think right now it's back to just uh, full-time members uh, currently. After that period of time, then you have to put your application in. You have to see a selections officer to see if you're, you meet it or not, get some testing, check the head out, make sure you're good to go for the future academic aspect of it. Um, you have to have 
stellar reports throughout your four years, throughout recommendations of the commanding officer. Uh, then you go to a board, a board of brains. And next thing you know, the numbers are crunched and they spit out names and you find maybe you're hopefully you're lucky that you made a selection program. Applications could be anywhere from 100 that year to 300 that year. It could be, you know, it all depends on uh, what's going on. Now, we did have some competition with the special operations up there because they were had a good little pay raise. Uh, so we were finding we we're having a lot of people going that way. Well, our pay raise just got balanced. So you should see those numbers come back to being a little bit even now with that. It's not everything, but it does help. Um, so after that, if you find yourself you're lucky that you made selection, you will then go away for almost three weeks into the Alberta area, and uh, you're going to go on a selection course. Uh, don't prior to that. There's also testing. There's aeromedical testing. You have to do this testing, hearing testing, long bone testing for diving, and all that. All these tests you got to get the thumbs up prior to going to selection. At selection, I call it the best diet program in the world. They don't beat you, they don't torture you, but they challenge you. Um, and during that period, um, three weeks, the first week is more induction. Uh, you're learning on the ground what you have to do, map and compass, some survival techniques, uh, some general testing. Uh, you'll be given articles and things to read. And then later on down the road, you may be challenged on how many bones are there in human body. I mean, somewhere you read that, and that has to be regurgitated down the road under stress. Uh, for myself, uh, during the period, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I lost, I think it was 18 pounds in a week and a half. So it takes a lot of weight off you. When they put a heavy, 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 heavy ruck, heavier than any infantry ruck I roll in the mountains with snowshoes, and your survival candies are all you have. So it does tear away at your calorie, uh, your calorie intake, what you have to use for energy. But back to usually about 30 some, 30 some, 30 go on selection. Uh, and on average, they take anywhere between, I'd say, eight and 14. You, some years you may have bigger numbers. So one year we had six. So it all depends. On average, the course load is around 12 people. And for that 12 that make it, um, that are select, they will then go on a year-long basic search and rescue technician course. Uh, and during that course, it's 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 a good time. It's a good memory. At the end, you're happy that it's done. Go back to your family. Um, but the course is pretty amazing. You're doing everything from you find yourself sitting in an anatomy physiology class to working in the back of a paramedic uh, van or car downtown Vancouver working on human beings, which you never thought. And next thing you know, you're jumping out of airplanes day or night into water, hanging on ropes in the mountains, helicopter hoisting, underwater diving, cross-country glacier travel, all that within that year. And what's kind of funny about, I tell all the younger Sartex out there as well, the first year you're done, you have some amazing skills, but you haven't even cracked the surface yet. For the next five years, you're in the, the meat grinder and you're learning everything for the next five years certain advanced medicine, advanced climbing, uh, more diving training, and then you're out there doing the operational missions. Yeah, So the that 30 down to 12, and that 12 is usually your course, and it's about a year long. And it's uh, it's good. Selection's tough, though. It is a tough it's a tough process, but it's uh, probably the most professional course I've ever seen run in the Canadian military. Yeah, well, you sent me the uh, the video, kind of like a, a teaser, a 10-minute teaser of what you guys do, and it was it was amazing to watch. Yeah, the young fellows put that together. Like they, that, of course, uh, every year when they're done, they have to produce a film for everybody to watch. So during graduations, they'll show the film. And every other Sartak, past, present, future, you name it, if you wanted to be in this community, 
everything, pilots, loadmasters, you wait for it and you get the drink in hand and you watch that video because they're doing quite well. They produce it quite well now too. Yeah, no, it's very well done. But I mean, just seeing, you know, the the level of training, the, you know, intensity of some of the evolutions, the equipment, you know, it really underlined, you know, that realism in training and obviously that bar being set high and you guys have a very diverse skill set. And it's something I talk a lot on here. You know, we, we are responsible for everything from paramedicine in the back of an ambulance all the way through to hanging off the side of a building, you know, with a, with a harness, uh, going down a sewer line, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you know, if it's not something that law enforcement is going to be involved with, it's us. So seeing the, the bar being set high and training being put at the absolute forefront was, was exactly kind of again with the parallel it's what we should be seeing the fire service what i see happens a lot with us is you know we have great training at the beginning obviously it's focused mainly on the fire side and then emt school but then as you get into the field there are some great progressive departments that maintain that level but there's a lot that they get into the kind of box checking and that realism and training and that repetition is lost so how how are you able once you graduate that first year how are you guys able to keep that training bar set so high um, in every squadron, every unit, you will have a training cell, standard cell. Um, you will have uh, deployed on an aircraft uh, with a team leader or a team member. Um, and throughout the year, you have continuation training. You say, I checked in, for example, I just started flying on the aircraft. Well, my training is going to be that aircraft until I qualified on it, whether it be a fixed wing platform or a rotary wing platform. Uh, and at the same time, I'm learning the aircraft. But the aircraft's great. The aircraft is the means to get there. It's the taxi. It is a, everything is just transport. Whether it's my black Cadillacs on my feet, or it's my uh, my silk sheet above my head with my parachute, it, it's all the means of transport. Medicine is what we're there to do: is get our hands on the ground, stabilize the patient, package the patients, and get that patient off scene to to a table somewhere if required. Um, so throughout the year, you'll have a a mountain exercise. So you'll have to do a, a mountain trip. You'll go to the Rockies for a week or you'll go somewhere else for a week and conduct mountain training with your unit or joint with another unit across Canada. That's same as an, a dive exercise. You'll have dive training where you'll go away for a week and that's all you'll focus on for that year is dive training. Now throughout the year, when it's not um, continuation training or force generation training, doing that uh, evolution, Throughout the year, you have to maintain other dives. You, you'll hit the climbing wall. Uh, you'll hoist uh, down into the trees somewhere, and you'll rappel from the tides to the low spot, and then it gets extracted by the helicopter via hoist. So throughout the year, you try. You have a training program, and you must do. And then there's training through a continuous training that you'll do on every day. And if you're not flying, guarantee you're going to have a young fellow tapping on your shoulder saying, hey, let's hit the wall. Hey, let's do a medical sim. Hey, because they want to train. They're hungry, and they want to get out there. And it's good on them because – as you get up there in, in the age and the seniority, the paperwork and the office starts grabbing you versus the train. Um, but you mentioned about having this so many different skills that you have to do and maintain. And people have asked me uh, my time in the career, some of the things I've seen, some of the uh, what I've seen and what I've touched, what things have scared me. And one of my biggest fears is not knowing something that I'm supposed to know. And how am I going to, when I get on scene and I have to rig a rope system up to get that person off of bottom of a cliff and I'm rusty and I'm making mistakes or I'm scared because I don't know what I'm doing is a hundred, hundred percent at this time. And that's one of the biggest fears. Um, and then that's played throughout my career because in our, in my field, the same as yours, 
when you answer the call, it's not always black and white. It's not always behind door number one is a guarantee. When you open that door and look and go, oh, sweet Jesus, this is changing. This is different. This is not okay. What do we do? And that's where your skills got to come in and how you can cross these skills sometimes or know what you're doing and have a redundant plan in case it doesn't go well. But the fear, not like a mission, jumping in the water, parachute. Yeah, I've been scared doing those things. But fear of not knowing something I'm supposed to know that could endanger the patient or endanger my team. I agree with you 100%. Like that was that was always my biggest stressor was, you know, on the way to whatever, like what if I forget the drugs? What if I, you know, like you said, I, normally we have special operations when it comes to some of the rope systems and that kind of thing. So you're normally a, an, an addition to that team. But yeah, I mean, that little voice in your head, that uh, imposter syndrome is to me was the biggest driver yeah. for my my training standards. 100%. So what about fitness levels then? Uh, one thing, again, that we, we suffer from a lot in all the first responder professions is usually when we leave an academy, you know, everyone should be at a certain level of fitness. But there, again, are a few departments that do this very well, a lot that don't. Once you leave, now you're in a place where there's no fitness standard, which is mind-blowing to, you know, some of the special operations I talk to, the lifeguarding community I talk to, even stunts. I just had to re-up on my stunt fitness every six months just to do a stunt show in universal studios so how do you guys you know set the bar as far as fitness are you held to a standard every year uh we do have to maintain a, a canadian forces standard uh there is a, a test coming as well for the search and rescue technicians we had one but then they went for a universal across the canadian forces until their studies came back and decided this is going to be our firefighters this is for divers this is for search and rescue police but we haven't got that yet um, so now it's a basic one and I'll be honest, it, it's not, the basic one is not tough. When I call it what it is, it is not tough. So right now it comes down to, uh, that person themselves in, in the army. When I was there, it was easy in the army. Army was seven o'clock, four mile, put the rucksack on your back. We're all going. There's no choice of doing PT. You had to show up and do PT in the air force. It's a little bit different because you have different crew changes. You have different requirements, aircrafts taken off this time, that time. It, so for a lot of it, it comes down to personal pride. In the occupation that I am in, personal pride and the responsibility to do it. Because ultimately, number one, you are responsible to yourself. You're responsible for your partner that's sitting beside you. And you're responsible for the person you're, you've been assigned to go and help. So every unit has amazing gyms. You can go from traditional training to CrossFit. You name it, it it's available to you. Every Canadian Forces base has an amazing facility for indoor tracks and pools. It's all there. So there is no excuse why your physical fitness is not to a standard. And we understand we get older, we get a little bit slower, but for the most part, our old and slow is well above the average person that's out there on the street. So I think overall, uh, our guys are, are maintaining for sure. Some are just elite, elite, elite athletes. Uh, and like you said, the newer generations coming out of the academies, out of the schools, they're nothing but lungs. They're lungs and a smile. They're fit, they're very strong, and they're they're very orientated. I find right now the, the days of, you know, coming out and having a few beers or, you know, chilling out. Guys will still do that, but the guys are also going to crush two workouts prior to coming out to have that beer. Uh, they're just fit machines and it's a little bit different mentality, but I think what we're getting now is very, very strong physical fit candidates as well. Well, I think that's the gold standard, having a group of men and women that you don't need to have standards. You know, they just yeah. get it. They understand that lives depend on us and therefore they hold themselves accountable. Um, what do you think that, your organization does to foster that mentality and to filter out the people that aren't cut from that cloth? 
uh, right away, it's selection. <laughs> if you don't uh, uh, pass the, the physical fitness test, you're going home. Um, that, that's, that's it. You, you get like a flag, second flag, you're gone. Uh, but even during the evaluation process on selection, if you can't climb a rope, you can't do this in a certain time, uh, there's a strike against you. And some strikes are worth a little bit more than others. Uh, physical fitness, let's just say, has a very large point connected to it. So if you can't, uh, you know, as they, where the term comes, pull your own weight, uh, then you're probably not going to find yourself uh, in the occupation. Strong people, strong characters, but we want physically fit people because that does, as you know, translate into decision-making process when you're still thinking straight under stress. Absolutely. Well, as we mentioned before, the diverse skill set, you know, Dave Prosciero Best was on here, helicopter pilot, um, you know, amazing stories of, you know, some of the, the rescues via helicopter, but he touched on something which I'd never really heard of before, which is you guys flinging yourselves out of fixed wing aircraft. So I'd love to hear about that and then expand on, on all the different kind of um, environments that you guys operate in. Um. Yeah, we, traditionally we, we go to work uh, via helicopters or fixed wing platforms. Uh, currently, right now, um, we have the main helicopter we fly is a CH-149 Cormorant Search and Rescue Helicopter, three engine aircraft, four with an APU, I guess, uh, dual hoist, uh, all weather capable aircraft. Amazing helicopter, a big one, actually. Uh, the other aspect is via parachute, uh, via a fixed wing platform. Currently, it is the uh, CC-130 Hercules aircraft. Uh, you find yourself, you can walk into a unit, uh, such as the bigger units. Uh, you could have dual planes. You have a helicopter on the pad and our Hercules sitting on the other side. And you walk in and say, hey, James, yeah, what are you on today? I'm on Herc. I'm on Cormorant. Roger that. You go to your locker, you grab your kit. And the kit that you need to operate uh, on every region of Canada follows you on that aircraft. So you could have a um, your dive gear on the floor strapped down. You could have your uh, your helmet bag, which has all the little things, flashlights, dive mask. It has gloves. It has all that stuff. Uh, your sit harness. Uh, you could find uh, you have a, a camp kit for survival, staying with patients. You could have rock equipment for climbing as well, putting in uh, securing anchors. Um, you could also find your Arctic survival kit. Uh, you have a B-25. We call it survival bag. Snowshoes, uh, muckluck slippers, heavy stuff for working in the Arctic. Uh, and like you said, dry suit, you can find yourself diving under the water. And in the, in the, while you walk on the aircraft, you have training kit, but you also have the operational kit on the fixed wing. So you have parachutes on board that you could fling yourself out in the Arctic or fling yourself out into the ocean with a life raft strapped to your ass. Um, so you could find yourself, and you never know, from high Arctic to out past, high, uh, out past the oil fields, 200 miles out, uh, shaking hands with a British aircraft, searching for a sailboat in distress to jumping into the trees because there's nowhere else to jump and landing in the trees and propelling yourself out of the trees to put your boots on the ground to stabilize the patient. So you, that's one of the part of the job I always loved because um, you never know what you're getting when you go to work that day. Well, with the fixed wing rescue, so you know, you're, you're trying to access, for example, a, a vessel that's in trouble. Talk to me about the precision that's needed to land via parachute in the ocean close to a vessel because that sounds extremely taxing to me yeah for sure um 
for example, we may come on scene day or night, um, and we're, we'll be hailing on radios trying to, to find the person or night vision goggles trying to see what we can see. Uh, I remember one night we were going along and we have a crew of six reported overdue, well overdue, family concerns. So they launch us and out we go. And we find this boat just adrift, just floating, no lights on, just bobbing around the ocean. Uh, not hailing, 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 channel 16, hailing, nobody's coming up. So I remember the aircraft commander uh, coming back and saying, Norma, what are you going to do, man? No signs of stress, but so let's wake them up. So let's wake them up. So Hercules, four engines, big engines turning, a big aircraft. Uh, and we came over that boat about, about 150, 200 feet at night and just flew right over top of the cabin. Boom! Lights come on, like, holy Jesus. So we just woke them up, made comms, like, hey, everything's good. Non-standard, but we can just def- definitely wait to wake you up in the middle of the night. Now, at the same time, they may be dead in the water. There could be people on board, boats in distress, they're waving, but they can't talk to them. So again, we do have a radio on board that, again, we can tie a rope to with a small little parachute. And we can come over top, very similar to what you see in the U.S. Coast Guard as well, when they drop stuff out of the back. And we can come over top and we can drop a rope pretty much right on top of them or right beside them that they can get it with a hook. And then we can establish communications. And that will, that will drive us usually what we see and what we hear on how we're going to do the mission. At the same time, uh, we couldn't know there's a Canadian Coast Guard vessel or, or a fishing vessel of opportunity that's nearby that we can hail and say, can you come up alongside and help the vessel? Versus chucking a piece of meat out of the back and us landing and putting ourselves in a bad situation as well. Uh, but again, if we hit that comms or we see what's going on, then we have we could jump. Usually, if the Herc is out there doing that job where there's people involved, again, uh, we are the we call it the the rescue bomber. There's also the rescue machine, and that's the cormorant coming behind with the blades turning, the hoist ready to extract the people. If we know the cormorant's in bad weather, cormorant's a little delayed because of speed, can't keep up or us getting out there faster. For whatever reason, we do have the ability to throw life rafts to them. We do have the ability to throw pumps to them or survival equipment, uh, radios, like I said, to try to support the mission. If there's some situation that they, they're really sick, it could be a cruise ship, somebody's in trouble, a fishing vessel way out, uh, and then we may have to find that they need medical attention. They need somebody on board with medical skills to stabilize. Uh, then, yeah, and that now devises are we day or night? Uh, at nighttime, it's a whole different game because you need to put flares, high-powered flares in the corridor so we can jump. So when we come out, we can actually see if our parachute's working, number two, and we can see our target area where we're going to land. Prior to all that, hopefully we're talking to them uh, because it's a lonely, lonely place to be in the ocean if nobody's coming to get you. So we make contact uh, via fishing vessel and we tell the captain, speak English, hopefully speak in English. And I will usually want to see a boat, get small boat, recovery boat, get in the water, power their engine. So when I do land beside that, they're there to pick me up because it's very hard to try to get out of the water into a large vessel. And you want that vessel, smaller vessel, to be able to see you, extract you. So yeah, you could find yourself in that situation by day or by night. Um, Next thing you know, It's definitely a difference. Usually when you jump out of a plane, you have a horizon. You can see land. So to jump out of a Hercules and you just see blue or dark, and then you see your fins come up in front of you and there's no horizon, curvature maybe of the earth. And then you look down and you see a little dot and you have to fly to that and land. And they train you. The search and rescue occupation trains you very well on how to fly that canopy, very accurate skills to fly that canopy. Um, and then they train you on how to deal in the water, both emergencies in the air and emergencies down below in the water. Um, 
And then after that, once you get in the water, you can pop your parachute off and your flotation, your medical bags nearby. And hopefully there's a vessel to get you out of there. If not, you got to swim. And that could be a very, 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 very hard swim to get to somewhere. Well, speaking of uh, the training, if you have a problem in the water, I remember in the video they showed it, like on the back of the boat, they had a harness that was, um, I guess, replicating probably what a parachute would do if it dragged you through the water. Is that right? Yeah, you have high winds. If you're jumping in high winds, um, uh, you have two parachutes. You have your main parachute, and then you have a reserve backup parachute. And anytime there's high winds, capable of high winds or dragging you, and I do it for water anyway as well, you have a release system. So as soon as I activate my parachute, that pulls and the wind takes it, but it also has a lanyard attached to it. And then that will automatically pull your reserve parachute for when you're in the air flying. Well, if you don't activate your disconnect, it's called an RSL on your right shoulder. So if you don't activate that, uh, in high winds, you should pull it, release that mechanism that can pull your reserve. Because if you land on the land or you land in water, and you pull that and it pulls your reserve. Now you're trapped in your harness because the other one, if you pulled it, it would just cut away the main and your reserve is still with you and you didn't get dragged through the water. But for some reason you cut it away. You, you didn't do that. You cut it away and it pulls it. Now you're being drugged and you're, you're caught in that harness and you're going to have to get out by your leg strap or your chest strap. So that drill you seen was that kind of scenario. You're being drugged in the water by your parachute, being drugged over waves and it's drowning you. And you have to know how to get out of it. Um, once you get pretty good at it, you can land perfectly in some winds and that mechanism is released. Soon as your feet hit the water, you can pickle your reserve and it flies behind you. So now one, you're free of all the ropes entanglement that's around you and no parachutes are landing on top of your face and entangling you. So once your feet hit the water, you hit it timing right. It's a beautiful day, like a duck landing in the water. <laughs> but again, this is just one tiny skill set. I mean, you guys are climbing and you know skiing and all these other things too. So it's amazing the the level that you're required to get to each of these skills. Now you mentioned about language. What happens if you do have a vessel that speaks a different language? Do you have some sort of inter interpreter that you can bring on the line? No, uh, we we do, but it's not always easy to get. It would be via satellite communications. For the most part, vessels that operate in our waters, or there's usually somebody on board, English speaking, a captain or something, you'd be able to talk to. Certain parts of uh, Canada, the north, uh, high regions of Quebec, French, there could be a language barrier. For the most part, we can get by. Um, there's probably about a 40% chance uh, during the crew that there's somebody that can speak English and French. Uh, but when you're dealing with uh, Russian, uh, Spanish, it can be a challenge at times. Uh, I remember one of the first times I ever did a mission as a young guy. I uh, got aboard the vessel. It was a Spanish trawler. And I had the, the captain up there and trying to talk with the captain. His, his mate was really sick. And we had bingo fuel. We had to go. And I'm looking at him. We're having problems, problems. And I just looked. And I had a little girl at home. And we watched Dora the Explorer. So I just looked at the guy and I was like, I'm tired. We're running out of fuel and we got to go. So I said, Vamanos, let's go. And I'll come on, Vamanos, a little Dora thing down the road we go. So I used whatever tool I had and Dora the Explorer saved me that day to get him going. There so there, go. there, there, can be, there can be challenges for the most part though. If you say ouch or ow or pain or you push something and you simulate, oh, ow, like they'll, they'll tell you enhanced expressions to what is sore. For the most part, um, if you're that far out with a helicopter for a say, uh, time is of the essence. You don't have time to do a lot of uh, medical treatment on the vessel. It's quick head to toe, quick, uh, you know, 
initial action to stop something and then got to go because the more time you stay, if you delay fuel and extraction, that's less time the patient uh, potentially can have. Now, obviously, there's a lot of discussion about Russia at the moment. And as with so, as we talked about earlier, you know, with, with Eastern Europe, you know, there's a few people in government buildings that decide the fate of, you know, most of their civilians that, that live in that country. Did you have any interaction, positive interaction with Russian vessels and or crews when you were working up there? Uh, working, usually for them, it'd be out to sea. It'd be a fishing trawler. Um, I've never had any problem um, at all myself dealing with other crews. Uh, for the most part, they're in distress or somebody is very, very sick and they're very happy to see us. I've had uh, crews, uh, French crews, Russian crews, they, they'd slap vodka in the back of my pack or put a bottle of wine in my pack before I left the deck back into the helicopter. I think for the most part, and I treat this like for anything, we're all human beings. We all bleed. We all have feelings. We have our heart. We love and we smile and we like to have our family around us. That's no difference across the world, anywhere. So when I boots on the deck and my team is there helping, they see it as we're non-combative. We're a big yellow helicopter. It has rescue written on it. Uh, we're here to help. So I've never had a problem. I think that's an important perspective because I think that part is lost. You know, I mean, even people had the perception that we were at war with Afghanistan. No, we, we were hunting terrorists in a country that was being yeah. terrorized by the same terrorists. 100%. Yeah. 100%. All right. Well, then I want to kind of direct you towards a notable rescue that you made. And I'd love to hear, you know, in detail. So March 27th, 2012, I know you and your crew were awarded for that, um, a rescue off a fishing trawler. Have I got that right? Uh, yeah, uh, that was... Uh, I was Tabasco, digging online. <laughs> Tabasco too, yeah. yeah. Um, that mission was 2002, 2012, I can't remember. They, they all blend in together right now, but uh, that one was... Uh, there's actually two missions that night. Uh, it was quite interesting. Um, I'm thinking that's the one you're talking about, the Tabasco 2. Yeah, when I when I Google you, because as with many humble operators out there, there's not a, you know, you don't have, you didn't put every Instagram, you know, excuse me, every rescue on Instagram and, you know, hashtag lifesaver. <laughs> so no. I was digging, but this was the one that, that, you know, came up as far as an award that you won for this. But it sounds like I think you lost two fishermen despite all the rescue attempts, but you saved a bunch more. Oh, that one's actually, that's the Ryan's. Uh, no, we... I can give you a snapshot of both missions. Yeah, no, that's I'm the thing. Sure I'd love to just them. hear of some notable notable missions in yeah. your career. Um, the Tabasco 2 one, the sailing vessel, um, it was actually a two-mission night. We were we had departed out of Greenwood, Nova Scotia, just down the road from where I'm at right now at 413 Squadron. Uh, we were out doing a training mission. Um, so night training, it was the operational crew on board. We did have a uh, training flight engineers on board where standards evaluation, somebody was being checked by a standards person to ensure standardization was maintained. We got a call. We got a call for um, a, a vessel in a lake uh, taking on water, potentially capsized. And we were like 15 minutes away from that location at night. And when we, when we were in the back of the aircraft planning a land scenario, we're not dressed for the water. So cue the music. It's time to get dressed very fast. So it's just nothing but body parts flying, kits going on, we're getting dressed. And sure enough, we roll up on scene and uh, uh, we're looking, trying to get them on comms, no hail. But all of a sudden you see the light, a light in the middle of the uh, lake. And guess what the light was? Cell phone. Somebody was on top of the boat. The boat was spy hopping. The bow was just out of the water. And somebody, a non-swimmer, we found out, was up there with a, a phone with his light on. 
And the coordinates he gave were identical, were perfect because the coordinates were on the phone. So we rolled on scene and we did see uh, two people on top of a boat and then I think five were in the water. Um, so we came into the hover. The helicopter's so big, you gotta watch the road of wash. You don't wash them all off and drown them. So I go down, I establish communications with them and I roll up and I realize, whew, first thing I smelled, no matter how much air was down there, was alcohol, just pure alcohol. You can smell on scene. And this is in a lake in the wintertime uh, with a helicopter above me, I could still smell it. And one guy was, wasn't the very most, you know, most cooperative. Um, but anyway, you started the extraction process. It was a bachelor party gone wrong out in a boat. They hit something, a big rock uh, somewhere in the lake. And she started sinking, and take on water pretty fast. So we started the extraction process. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, my, my partner, uh, <laughs> finished on a big boy, big heart, big boy, big strong country boy, the fists like that. Um, he came down and uh, one guy was not being very happy, being cooperative. And Rob is telling him to put his arms down because he has to put the collar around him to extract him out. And he's not being cooperative. He's not agreeing. So Rob gives him a warning. Put your arms down, sir. Put your arms down, sir. And he is drunk and combative. So Rob just takes the Thor hammer and just gives him a blunk right on top of the nose like you can see in the movie. But he pretty much not fully out, but definitely in a state that he cooperated from here on. <laughs> Ex extracted him right up into the helicopter, threw him on the floor, came back down. Uh, so yeah, we took about six out that night. The guy lost his phone because once he put his arm down, his phone was gone into the water. So he did lose a phone, um, but all of them couldn't walk. We put them up on the, they couldn't stand. From the waist down, they were just frozen. Um, so yeah, we took them to the hospital, transferred them over, good rescue. And as we're getting dressed, coming out of our gear, halfway out of our gear, it was a nasty storm off the south part of Nova Scotia, off a place called Sable Island. Um, pretty famous for shipwrecks and everything out there as well. And sure enough, I see my uh, Trevor Color and my aircraft commander look at me and he's like, he's on the phone. He's like, he's nodding his head at me. I'm like, what? I says, no way. He goes, yeah. He looks at me and he goes, you got like, I think it was like 10 people in the water, 10 people on a sailboat. And I went, I said, don't man, don't tell me it's a sailboat because I hate sailboats. Can't stand them. Just swinging masses dead in the water with cables and poles trying to hit you. So sure enough, it was a sailboat. And uh, what we found out late, what we found out later on proceeding to scene was that it was a human smuggling thing. They were trying to cross, uh, get into North America with a small little sailboat in the wintertime. Bad, bad choice of crossing. They got in serious trouble. There was a tanker out there that was trying to shield them somewhat. And I guess they did try to do a transfer. And you can imagine a high, high sea estate and a storm trying to move little boats and big boats together. A few people went in the water. A few people got crushed in between the boat. Um, yeah, so we proceeded from there after conducting that mission with six people. We then pulled power and headed out to sea, probably about 140 miles off the coast in a storm. And I remember <laughs> coming on scene and we're looking and the Herc had arrived with us as well was backing us up and they were throwing those candles I told you about throwing them out I remember my buddy Sean McEachern uh, being on the other aircraft and he's like Normie how's the illumination getting through not one of their candles high power candles penetrated the canopy to give us light down below it was that bad so we came on we've seen life rafts deployed from the big ships and from so we had to investigate everyone so I'd go down on the cable and uh, one of my first insertions down into the water, uh, and I, the reason why I tell you about this mission is prior to when I was a young Sartek, a bad mission happened to me as well. I got hit with some bad waves. And that shadow, that cast from the belly of the aircraft is me coming down. I remember it almost like a trigger going, oh, Jesus, here we go again. And that first wave hit me and 
tore my mask around my head, tore my, my, uh, my snorkel out of my mouth, who woke me up real quick. What I didn't know what happened is the flight engineer up top, Clint, he was in the door with the cable, and he was the one that's being evaluated. He's already qualified, but he's being just standards checked by the other guy up top. Well, the wave was so big and so powerful that it took the cable in his hand and ripped him back. So his arm came in behind him and tore his bicep off. So he was out of the game right away because the wave power had snapped his arm back so far, it tore it. Somebody was looking over us because the standards guy that was on board to check him took over. So he was the one working the cable. Clint then became the pendant operator. So two well-trained people in the door now working this mission. Anyway, for that life raft, I remember going in, looking around. And like any other thing, every other life raft I've ever done, I look in, there's nobody there. They just it activated it, went, went into the water. And I'd always look back and go, and I'd scream. There's nobody in there. But I'm like, just to confirm, there's nobody in this life raft. Because I'd hate to be a guy to leave a guy in a life raft underneath life jackets that are floating in the water. So we extracted out of there. And then we finally eventually found the sailboat. The sailboat had no mass and no keel. It was tore apart. It was just destroyed on the surface. And I remember looking down with the door, like I talked about the door opening up and looking down and going, oh my sweet Jesus, this is not going to be fun. Because it's hard to swim to that as well in a storm. You don't want to come off the hook at night because you may never get on the hook again because of the wave action, darkness, and the storm, fuel, everything. Um, and I remember looking down and then all of a sudden I remember my aircraft commander, he's you know, 15 feet ahead of me up in the pilot seat. And I remember, and he remember him looking back saying, Norm, he goes like, he just touched his shoulder. I said, well, you know, it is what it is right now. It's what we got to do. It's, uh, you know, they're not going to make it, whatever. So we could see some people, two people moving their arms. So like anything, we come up with some plans. Uh, we always, as a team, we decide, is this good? Option A, B, C, D, double, double A, annex attached to whatever, so-and-so. We look at our plan and we, we go with it. So hit the deck uh, hard, insert it on the deck, hit pretty darn hard, actually. Um, and now I'm still in fins because I could be in the water any second. Um, and I remember looking on, nobody's on the deck. It's a small little vessel, one of those ones you come in top and you'd have to go down into the little sailboat and crawl down. And I remember laying there on the deck because I couldn't stand up because the sailing vessel is pitching so much from side to side that the little ropes that they have on the sailing vessel that you can run your hand across and walk from the stern to the bow. When, I, when she'd come to her port or starboard, it was that that was keeping me on the boat because my fins and my boots were pressing on the rope line to keep me on the boat every time it would turn from side to side. And there was a small engine that they would run inside of our harbor was smashing me on the thigh back and forth every time we'd roll. So it's the only time I ever used my dive knife in, in 19 years as a search and rescue technician. I took my dive knife off and cut that boat, that boat away and threw it in the water because it was going to break my legs. And then I remember seeing, I looked down, I took my head and just looked down the stairs because I couldn't really stand up. And there was two down there and one laying on his face on the deck um, and the boat sloshing in water. So I remember, you know, my partner's now coming down, Rob, from the previous mission, same big monster with a Thor hammer. He's coming down the pipe as well. And he's getting beat off the boat, chucked in the water. His spare air was blown off his body from the impact of the boat once. And I'm trying to get this guy to come up because Rob does not have the time to go down there and try to get him. It's not safe either to get ripped through the boat. So I remember just seeing him screaming. And it's a Romanian, definitely a language barrier. But at the same time, the universal signal is you're sinking in a boat. There's a helicopter above you. Rescue people on the deck. We're not here discussing or play cards. It's time to go. 
So I remember looking down and I could still see my little mountain equipment co-op kayak gloves that I had on for dexterity to work the hook. And I still seen his Romanian curly hair. And I reached my fingers into his hair and I grabbed him by the hair and I pulled him up to me on the deck, kept pulling him up by his hair until he was up. And then we grabbed him in the collar. And as soon as the collar was on, the cable came taut and pulled my partner and him off the boat into the water, stabilized in the water, and then extracted them up. At this point, we took another person up. And then I was trying to go down, uh, again, challenging throughout the whole time. I was trying to go down because the other guy was unresponsive. And I didn't want to leave him on the boat knowing that there was still life in him. So at that point, I decided to, with the hook still on me, to try to keep the hook cable from me, the helicopter. If I was being pulled out, I want to be pulled directly into the water, over the rails, not pulled through the structure into the car, into the cabin to kill me. So then I walked down the first level of the stairs with my fins on, and I grabbed him by the belt loop and tried to pull him up on the deck with me. So I'm pulling his leather belt. I just remember hearing his loops of his jeans popping, and his belt was in my hands. So I managed to get him by the arm and drag him up, put the collar on the back engine where you would steer the vessel. And we pulled him up. When I did put my arms on him, I knew he was in trouble. His chest was now jello. There was no, there was no feeling. I anticipate that he was trapped in between the transfer and he got crushed. So he did not make it. Um, so when we got him on board, we did take a few people off, but yeah, he, he did, he perished on that mission. So that was the, we found out there was 10. Uh, I think uh, three went in the water and uh, we never found them. Uh, we did do what we could do for those patients on board that vessel that night. And it's the only time that I've ever come off a mission and got in my seat after being down below and sat on the seat that my, because uh, we still had people on the water, three we were looking for. Uh, the sailboat was clear. We had removed everybody from that dancing cork in the water, I called it. Um, and Trevor said, Norm, we have about uh, 25 minutes of fuel. What would you like to do? Because he knew we were beat up bad. Uh, we had an injured flight engineer. Me and my partner were in a bad state. Um, and uh, I just, I told him, I said, inside my mind is saying, get me, pardon my language, Jim, get me the fuck out of here. I was beaten. I was tired. But at the same time, we still had fuel. We still had eyes and windows. We still had some hope that maybe we could find them. We never did. We went to our limits of fuel and then we had to uh, return to base. So that was the Tabasco two night, two missions. Uh, so roughly around 12 people involved. Incredible. Yeah. And that was just one, one shift. Yeah, that was one shift. That was a night routine trainer, like I think a Tuesday night or something like that. We were going in for eight-hour box lunch sandwich, and we were going just to pound about two hours of gas out. And yeah, like I said, like that, things can change. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's so much to pull from that. I mean, obviously, firstly, being ready for a land operation and having to change your gear. And as you said before, making sure that everything you might need is there at hand just in case, which I think is a huge takeaway. The other thing, though, is it really parallels something I've talked about a lot, which is the inability to save. In my career, if I was going to detail the most crushing element, it would be being trained, do X, Y, and Z, and the person will jump up and give you a hug and high five and off they go. Well, the reality is in paramedicine, especially if someone had a cardiac arrest in 14 years, I never, never had a save. I was just kind of that guy that, you know, people came to to die, you know, so obviously, you know, made rescues, made pre-codes, all those things, but, and that, that weighs down. And I think the only uh thing that bolsters that that works against it is if you know in your heart of hearts that you trained so therefore you know in your heart of hearts that you gave them every chance to survive talk to me about that with you because i mean you know that was just one call obviously there's other ones as well where you weren't able to get the people that you were sent for um you know well, what's the what's that element for you and then and then the kind of the, the mental health 
um, lens that you have? Um, I think for myself and what I tried to train people at the same time is, uh, like you said, everything is not like the movies. Everything is not a, a beautiful ending. Um, people are going out there and getting themselves in trouble, which is, it happens. It happens every day from you could drive into the grocery store to, you know, flying a plane in the high North, that things go wrong. It happens. Um, and you're not going to save them all. What things I try to do is, you know, if I do put hands on, um, whether it's treating them and bringing them to a positive place or recovering them uh, from a plane crash or from them being in the water, it, it's, I look at it as I did what I could. I did how I was trained. I gave it everything I could. And hopefully I can provide closure to a family member. So now they can properly mourn in, um, in a way that where they might not have if they never had a body to mourn. So that's one of the things that I try to instill in myself. Um, you're, you're right. It, there's, you know, uh, somebody mentioned to me at one time, they said, I wish I could see or talk about what your, what your eyes, not just me, all my team partners. We're talking about my missions here, but there's so many missions. And what I did, my fellow partners that are my left and right front and back would do the same thing. It's just that I was on the clock during that mission that night. Um, yeah. So, but for me, one of the ones that you talked about doing everything you can, um, my mental health, you know, I've had my ups and downs throughout my career as well. And uh, it's very important. And a lot of it comes down to just uh, talking with a peer for myself uh, to help somebody that can relate and you can have a discussion. Some of them could be in the horror, horror, horrific, elements in your life but at the same time you can laugh about it in a way amongst a peer that was there and has done a similar thing so sometimes that helps a little bit <clears throat> for myself the only <clears throat> major one i guess that i have is uh, on a mission uh, the first mission i was going to mention to you there it's and being responsible and going down the water and making contact with people and then all of a sudden telling them lining them up for extraction plan and to look at somebody and say i'll be back for you and they're made it back and uh that person perished. So I guess I don't have many flashbacks. I don't have anything horrific that comes up every so often. A smell will trigger something from Bosnia or a small memory, uh, a major heat stroke. I had one time and, and a, a medic took care of me and said, open your eyes. No, I'm open your blue eyes. That's a dream I have every so often that same episode or the one which pops up every so often, not very often, but is that, you know, that I swim to the life raft and I put my hands up and I tell the person I'll be back for them. And then those dark hands grab me and release me from the life raft and they drift back into the life raft. So they're there for sure. And the things that we see, smell, see, and touch in our life, uh, especially in your occupation, my occupation, it's not normal. And it, it's okay to have those little battle scars and things because, you know, people get tra uh, traumatic from getting in a car accident or seeing something, it affects everybody different. But when you go through a career, and some of those things become normal, it's okay to have a chink in the armor. It's fine. Uh, it, it's expected in a way. Now, what about organizationally? What kind of tools do you guys have at your fingertips to, to work on your mental fitness the same way you do your physical fitness? For years, it was, there was nothing. It was just like, a, you're tough, suck it up, shake it off. You know, That's all it was. Uh, and then have your peers uh, your peers was your main base. It still is. It still is one of the major things that you want to talk to somebody you need to, you know, they can send you to talk to somebody, but a lot of times you don't, uh, you're not happy with the person across the table with you or across that beer with you because they don't speak the same language. They haven't walked in the same boots. So a lot of it comes from that trust to one, be open. 
and that trust to know that you share the same uh, elements of your life or what you've seen in your, in your life. So, but since the last, I'd say six years, we do now have, um, it's the Road to Mental Readiness Program. It is put in place and it's not just for us, it's for the Canadian Armed Forces, um, but that's to help to identify, you know, stress throughout your career, how you can, you can deal with from your healthy to your reacting to become injured or ill and how you move between those continuums uh, throughout your life as well. And they give you coping mechanisms to deal with it uh, from self-talk. You know, we've all done that anyway. I don't need an expert telling me that like, Penny, you don't suck. Penny, you don't suck. Get this done. Uh, there's things you already, you can already do. Visualization. We got guys now climbing into altitude and parachutes, same as special operations do in the state. And you see them there, their eyes are closed. Their hands are moving. They're doing drills because they're visualizing the skills they're going to need to go in and do the job. So they have given us some more tools, more avenues. Uh, some people say it's okay. Some people say they're very happy with it. The way I look at it, it's something. It's a lot better than what I had years ago was suck it up, buttercup, get back in the meat grinder and get on the field. Those days are gone. Um, yeah, they're gone. So there's these avenues now are open. Um, but I still think number the one thing is it's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be injured. It's okay to talk to somebody. Uh, I remember being in the army and we have a battalion on the parade and we're getting to ready to deploy overseas. And uh, this was like well, 29 years ago, I guess. Not that long ago, I guess. Not that long ago. <laughs> and uh, we're going to go to the field for three weeks. And I guess some people just not didn't want to go to the field. But anyway, there was people that had, uh, we call it sick chits from the, the hospital, the MIR saying you couldn't deploy. Well, Sergeant Major at the time went out and he looked at everybody's and he moved them up to the stands. And then he told the parade, battalion, attention, about turn. Do not look at those weak and idle bastards. That's what he did in front of all the peers, everybody on board that parade. Let's just say times have changed and it's not like that anymore. It's okay to say I'm hurt. I'm injured. I need time. I need to take a knee for a second. I need to power down. That's fine. Uh, just so you know, that person was a super soldier that did that. Uh, a lot of respect. Everybody had a lot of respect for him. So we still do. But that was a glitch in his system for sure. And years later, he went and he committed suicide away as well. So, you know, it's everybody has their moment. Everybody has their, their limits as well. So we do have a program in place now. Uh, I've used it. I use it, you know, when I need it for sure. Um, but a lot of it for myself and peers that I know is a peer support group. Families as well, for sure. Uh, but to be able to that work and you know if something's wrong or you're not doing well. And what I've seen too is a lot of people, and it's sad to say, if they don't talk to you about it, it will come out when socials are out and all of a sudden beer is involved and all of a sudden you may see a tear in an eye or there's something he wants to tell you. That's when it starts coming out. And that's usually among peer to peer. That's where I find it. So a combination of both, I guess, for myself. Well, thank you so much for telling that story. I mean, that's that's it's interesting slash you know heartbreaking because the rub some dirt in it generation we know now that whole philosophy ended up putting more people in the ground than than should be there, and so that you know that tragic tale you just told illustrates that. But um, you know, it's so important for us to hear. I mean, you know, it's one thing for as you said the kind of airy fairy counselor that comes in and visits your department for you know two hour powerpoint presentation once a year to you know to come across as you know, talk about your feelings but it's another thing when for example yourself a you know a combat veteran in in the canadian army and then power rescue for all these years to 
vocalize what you just said because it to me it removes that facade that your generation my generation we were raised on rocky rambo you know terminator all these two-dimensional you know kind of caricatures of what they thought masculinity was versus what you just talked about i mean you and your you know your crew risked your lives over and over and over again and yet what you're talking about the 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 carriage of the uh, excuse me the baggage that we accumulate it doesn't have to destroy you but it's as it needs to be as recognized as the scars that adorn your body and i think that's such an important perspective like I said, we've come a long way and the uh, Canadian Armed Forces definitely has come a long way since then. Uh, I think the biggest thing is the difference now is it's okay to uh, have a kink in the armor. It's okay. You can talk about it. You can take the time to heal. And if it doesn't heal, it's fine. You're still the same person you always were to me and, you know, and, and it's okay. Some people it's uh, harder on others and, uh, but you're ne- never alone, never alone. And uh, we see a lot of people coming back from Afghanistan or, or in my occupation or police or fire. You know, the things we see, uh, one of your biggest assets you'll ever have is your, is your person beside you that's been there at the same time. And uh, that's what we try to use the most, I think. That was, and the resources that are available to us today, it's a definitely an amazing one-two punch. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your perspective. Now, I've got one total random tangent before we go to some closing questions. I had a gentleman on, um, Richard Browning, who is the inventor of the jet suit. I don't know if you've seen that on the internet at all, <laughs> okay. but they are yeah. actually using it quite successfully in search and rescue applications and in, in, you know, wilderness medicine applications. Um, have you come across that? And, and if you look at that kind of technology, do you see, you know, the, the future of search and rescue involving technology like that and drones extracting, you know, people from places where we physically had to put helicopters and human beings before? If I was to say we're not going to see something along those lines, I'm just archaic. Uh, no, that is coming down the pipe. Uh, technology, you never know someday I'll be on Star Trek, man, and you'll be able to beam me right on board that boat <laughs> and beam me off that boat. This, this, this stuff is coming from... Uh, you know, you said drones could have eyes on scene versus satellites. Years ago, we never had satellites, we had spy planes. So these things are coming down the pipe, whether, we, you know, I, I'm totally open to that. I probably wouldn't want to fly the first one on a mission, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I definitely see it for sure. I'm definitely like, I know they're using it in the UK. I've seen some uh, shipboardings with trials yep. uh, flying over water with it as well. Yeah, for sure. I don't think I'll be lighting one out of the helicopter deploying out with it because I don't think they'd like the crew would like it lighting it up. But uh, I definitely see it coming down the pipe. Yeah, it's just, it's an interesting application. I think of, you know, like some of the, the high-rise fires that we've had, you know, if you could safely put fire personnel on the roof to extract or even to to attack the fire from the roof downwards i mean there's so many potential you know applications and and like you said you know as we progress with this technology you know imagine that that one of you is on board and you're literally sending people off on these drones back to to the other vessel i mean it's it's mind-blowing the the potential but i mean god if we can if we can send a you know, an aircraft or a drone to hit a small shack in the Middle East, then surely we can you know, apply the same technology to rescue people from incidents. 100%. It's just a matter of time. I probably won't see it during my lifespan, but uh, it's coming down the pipe. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can be mindful of your time. 
The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend that can pertain to what we've discussed today or can be completely unrelated? Uh, not a big guy to crush books. Uh, I like documentaries and, and, and history, military history, but I did uh, crack the one with David Goggins there with the cards, so you can't hurt me. I think that kind of speaks to, you know, for the most part, uh, the military toughness and uh, kind of growing up in, in an area or your challenges as a youth. And next thing you know, you find yourself in a community that you love and especially with physical fitness and that, that mental side of being tough. That's the one I probably would, would say. It was quite amazing. I, th- I think he's a machine, just crazy. Yeah, definitely a hell of a story. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, then talking of documentaries, tell me some of those that you love, because I think that's such a, a powerful media these days. Um, yeah, like I said, mostly like right now, like I went to bed last night, uh, I put on uh, the Roman empire. Like I watched documentary on, on Julius Caesar and, uh, the starting of the Roman empire from Republic to working with the Senate. It's just, it's interesting because I find everything we, we kind of do today with regards to, it comes down to, uh, you know, there was the creation of the Roman empire from roads, communication systems, uh, running water, to how we deploy uh, units on the battlefield with the artillery and moving troops in the low ground. Uh, it's just, just interesting for myself and how it all started and uh, the conquest and then basically how it fell apart. So uh, every every empire has their day, that's for sure. So I, that's that's myself. It's a little bit of the history side, World War II, World War I. Um, I just like the documentary sides. Brilliant. All right. Well, next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, Dave. There'd be a lot in my occupation for sure. I couldn't really give you one, uh, any one of those cats uh, for sure. Uh, I could definitely get back to you if you want uh, some some other ones other than the search and rescue occupation for sure nothing's jumping out of me right now okay i yeah. work with some very 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 amazing people so it's hard to on the spot say that's the cat right now yeah no perfect that'd be that'd be amazing i think that's the thing because as i mentioned you know that we don't hear the power rescue voice very much you know i think there's there's many many different personalities that come on and, and tell stories as i said with the with the uh storytelling of rescue but also even on the military side you know the, the little nuances that you discussed today are the parts that people do not get to hear, the altruism, the opening the vest and fruit coming out, you know, those are the, those are the human elements that we, we're just not given that insight. We're given this, well, that's soldiers. The Marines went here, they killed these people or, you know, this, this unit was blown up by an IED and that's it. We don't get anything about the human being that's inside the uniform. Yeah. It's one of the stories I think I'd like to, to put out there for sure something I'd like to talk about is um, uh, growing up in that small town uh, playing baseball and, and all of a sudden, you know, obviously school, something I would change. I'd probably would have paid a little bit more attention in school and probably pursued it, you know, a little bit better studies, but anyway, I was happy, had a happy childhood in that aspect of it as well. But all of a sudden being told one day by a teacher, not just myself, a whole bunch of us boys being assholes in class, he just jacked us up. And he gave us a spiel. You guys will never amount to anything. You're going to be pushing brooms in the hallway, which there's nothing wrong with that, contributing society. Uh, but you're never going to amount to anything. You're going to be a, a welfare challenge, this, this, and this. And, uh, you know, they can be pretty harmful words uh, to a young man, a uh, young mind as well. And then one of my first missions I ever did off the East Coast here, I remember being on board with my crew. And uh, we pull power, blades start pulling us, and we're heading out to sea for a vessel that had sunk and some people in a life raft. 
And uh, I remember slapping the night vision goggles down and uh, proceeding out to sea on this beautiful multi-million dollar helicopter and looking down at the lights as everybody's going to sleep at two o'clock in the morning and I'm under green lights going, uh, basically F you there, uh, teacher. <laughs> I, I did okay. So uh, I think people got to realize, you know, you control your destiny. You'll always come to those roads and you'll have that wide junction and you can decide which why you choose. And if you choose the wrong one, you can reset your compass and you can go another route too as well. So it's a little point I had there. Beautiful. Yeah, I actually made that comment of uh, there's a guy, Mr. Blazard, who's one of my teachers, exact same thing. <laughs> you're, you're basically, yeah. you know, never amounts to nothing. And I had a conversation with my friends who's in the army. He's uh, one of the, the SEER instructors. And we were talking yeah. about that. It's like, you know, as we talked about with the air cadets, you as an adult have the position to either mentor and raise people up or criticize and push them down. And as a teacher, I think if you ever do, you know, the latter, then shame on you. Because as you said, you never know, you might, that one moment of kindness or inspiration or, or encouragement might have been the turning point for that child. And, you know, you and I basically disregarded their fucking advice anyway, but, (laughs) but there are people that didn't and they took it on board and, you know, maybe that was the final straw. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it can definitely harm you uh, or you can use it as power. I never use it as power. I just like, I brushed it off. But then I just remember that it clicked me that night at two o'clock in the morning. And I was like, you know what? This is pretty fucking cool. In back of an aircraft going out to help people. And uh, it's hard to beat that calling, helping a fellow human being. I couldn't agree more. Well, the last question before we make sure people know where to, to find you, if they want to connect online, what do you do to decompress when you're not flying or climbing or traversing the globe in some way? Um, for myself, I just, I had 29 years in the military, Reg Force, active service. I just recently uh, retired from the active service. I joined the reserve service because I needed, and you talked about the mental aspect, I couldn't go from full throttle to power down like that. Uh, I had a lot of friends that did that. It didn't go well. So I always knew I needed an, ex- ex- uh, an exit plan. So this position came open where I would still wear the uniform uh, on a semi-full-time basis. Um, It was still to work at a rescue coordination center, helping conduct the mission, but now supporting it, talking to the pilots, talking to the aircraft, and assigning it a tasking and supporting the mission. A little bit more comfortable behind a desk, uh, but I still miss the aspect of being out there on the tip of the spear doing the job. So... That is one way for me. I transit it. And don't get me wrong. I'm still having my transition period. It's been six months. Um, um, when you're removed from that element and not being there, it does take time to power down. Um, so this is one of the ways. The other way is uh, I join the civilian employment side of the house. And part-time as well, um, I work at a helicopter underwater escape training. It's the, the helicopter rotates, simulating a crash in the water, and they have to egress um, so we train the military crews, the Canadian forces on helicopters. So when they come through, I'm still an instructor. I'm still teaching them. I'm still providing and supporting the mission. And I still see my peers periodically when they come through for that training. So it's a beautiful transition. What do I do for myself when I'm home? I don't have to worry about birthdays and anniversaries missing as much anymore. So I do like that. I like the idea of coming home every night. It's pretty sweet as well. Uh, the other aspect is I have a gym downstairs and I like throwing the steel weights around and keeping it in shape. Um, that's because that's, that's part of me. If I don't work out, I get cranky. So I, I need to work out. 
uh, and I took up woodworking. I've made, I've any time to take up woodworking during the pandemic and isolation, the sprints, the cost of lumber, I didn't decide to take up woodworking because I was, again, maybe not the books guy, but I'm definitely hands and feet and practical skills working that machine gun kind of do it. You can see what I'm doing? That'll do it. And uh, so I find woodworking helps me as well. So the transition piece right now is what I do is um, work out, crush some lumber, stay in shape, try to stay in contact with my peers and keep active. Even though I'm not fully active duty right now, I still work quite a bit, but it's more of a pace that I can control. I love that because the transition is something that I see over and over again. People do struggle with, you know, and they think, yeah, they look at the loss of purpose, you know, the loss of tribe, you know, loss of community. Um, yes. And then, you know, some of these organizations, like when you're out, you're out, like your ID won't work anymore. You can't walk back through the doors. So having that, that gentle transition out sounds like a, you know, a great idea. I tried it with volunteering. It was with a different agency. It didn't work at all for me. Um, yeah. but this is how I stay connected to my community. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly talking to, to people in our world. So that's, that was kind of, you know, really what, once I got past the ego part, like, no, you're not wearing gear. You're not going to come out with a stained face carrying a baby anymore. Not that you ever did anyway, <laughs> but yeah. you know, you know, you can put that aside and yeah, realizing that you're still doing good in the world. It just looks a little different now. And that's, that's for me. Uh, I'm still in that some days I have good days where I feel like, you know, I miss it. I, I need to be out there. But there's the same time every person has a, an expiry date. Everybody has a time when they have to power down. I'm 51 right now. So I knew that date was coming because, you know, I'm following out or young guys are following me under 25, 26. And I can still walk upright. I don't have very many limps at this moment. Uh, so it was a job that you had, as you as you had as well. It's a job that was trained to kill you and you had to have training not to be killed while doing it. So, yeah, there's days that it's harder than others, but I'm definitely happy that I, the job that I currently have, the reserves, and the job that I have in the civilian side that still keeps me engaged with uh, the people that I work with. Beautiful. Well, for people that want to connect, where's the best place to find you online? Uh, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, you can get me on there as well. So there are those are the two. Uh, really wants to reach out. Anybody wants to know about the occupation, I can give you a up-to-date specs on it as well, or I can send you in the right direction to uh, to help you pursue a career in search and rescue, if that helps. Absolutely. Well, Norm, I just want to say thank you. I mean, to get another kind of window into your community, one, like I said, that we don't hear a lot from, you know, we got Dave's perspective as a pilot, but now, you know, we've had the actual you know, rescue side, the person on the end of the, the line. Um, it's been fascinating for me, um, but again, with so many of us in these professions that the human element, the fitness, the training, the mental health is so, so important. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. I appreciate I appreciate having me here today. And again, I'm very proud of the Canadian Force. I'm very proud of my time in the Canadian Force. And I'm very, very proud of the people that I worked with, both in the Army and in the search rescue occupation. So any chance that I can uh, get the word out on the street uh, about what those, uh, those men and women do on the yellow aircrafts uh, and in the orange suits, I have no problem spreading the word on what we do because uh, there's no finer people you'll ever meet than somebody that's going to jump out of a plane in the middle of the night and land beside you and hopefully get you out of this, a, st a stressful situation. So thanks for having me, James. I really appreciate it. And thank you for what you have done in getting this out there and the word uh, to everybody across this beautiful globe of ours about what our emergency personnel do.